Welcome to Encounter. We want nothing more than to help you find and follow Jesus. If you're a college student in Central Illinois, join us Monday nights, ISU's campus. We'd love to see you there. Good evening, friends. Glad to be in the room with you tonight. Hey, I'm going to, I know that normally it takes me a while to get to our texts. Tonight, I'm going to dive right in because we got, I'm, I'm excited about what we are able to do together in the room tonight. And so if you remember, if you can put your brain all the way back at the beginning of the semester, it's a long time ago, we started with our year theme, which we don't talk about every week, but our year theme was deep and wide. And we translated that into what it means to love God and to love people. And it came from this text right here on the screen. Matthew 22, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, him being Jesus, to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So again, I know I'm diving right in, but I want to take your brain back to the beginning of the semester when, we, when Jesus talked to us about these two guiding principles for our lives that are the big two. He's like, if you can follow these two, all of the Christian life flows out of this. Everything else follows after these two. Man, that's a big statement that all of our Christian behaviors follow those two principles that we see laid out in that text. Well, then we jumped into this series on miracles, and it's been really amazing and beautiful and humbling for me every week to be studying what God has the power to do. But I have to admit, you guys, as we spend all these different weeks talking about God's power to intervene and break the natural world, perhaps there's a disconnect for you where you're like, yeah, but how's that, how's that meet my life? Like, how does that, how does the power of God actually intersect Wednesday afternoon in central Illinois for me? And this gritty reality that I live in with my family issues and the stuff that my friends or my roommates are walking through. Like maybe you have gotten the sense that there's this divide that sits between some of the things that we've been talking about. These beautiful scriptural principles that I think are absolutely true and the real world that you navigate every day. All right. So your small groups, if you're in a small group, you guys continued that. I mean, we jumped into the miracles study, but you guys have been doing love God, love people, alternating weeks. I'm really excited about what your small groups will be doing this week on how, different ways to love people. Part of that question of where does this miraculous, like how does that happen? How does the miraculous interrupt my world on an average Wednesday? I, I think your small groups are a part of that. But beyond that, I think there are other things that we can talk about. Tonight is one of those things. I'm hoping to to drag those worlds together for you. Next week will be one of those weeks where we can drag those worlds together for you. Three weeks out will be one of those weeks where we can drag those worlds together for you. So we have cool places we're going between now and the end of the semester. Don't dip out on me. I think you need these weeks as we talk about this. So real quickly before I get into that tonight, I just want to mention that the way that Jesus did this the way that he helped his disciples understand the miraculous world and how that intersected their lives was he lived it out right in front of them. We've been talking about it every week. That very first miracle that we talked about where Jesus turned water to wine, that was private. I mean, the disciples knew about it. His mom, Jesus's mom knew about it. And a few of the servants knew about it. And that was it. When he calmed the, the storm on the boat, the disciples were the only ones there, you guys. 
He's, he's performing these things with them. When he feeds the 5,000, they have responsibilities and how they're picking up food and doing. I mean, th- these are object lessons for the disciples. They're not just miracles. Jesus is intentionally doing these things in front of and with them. They're participating in it. Why? Because when Jesus is gone, they're the ones who are left to live that out. And they needed to see how it was done. So often you, oftentimes, you guys, in the Christian world, how do we learn to live the Christian life? by watching how other people live the Christian life. Like, we get to see God's miraculous work happening in their life, and we sort of, like, eavesdrop on that. And we're like, huh, that's interesting. It's interesting to see what you value and what you think about and how you spend your time. And by proxy, we begin to understand some of those things ourselves. I mean, that was totally true for me, probably true for you, that I began to watch other people who were way further along in their faith and be like, I don't know how to get past this problem. And they'd say, well... Here's a way to do that. Paul had no problem. I mean, Paul didn't want to be worshipped. In 1 Corinthians, in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 3. Yes, he was very clear in talking about, you know, they were beginning to follow Paul or follow Apollos. And in some ways, it was almost like worshipping their little celebrity pastor. And Paul was like, no, 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 let me cut this down right now. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're just servants of God. That's all we are. He makes it clear. But later on in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 11, he has no problem saying, hey, follow me as I follow God. Like, you can look to me as an example as I follow Christ. We should be able to say that. We shouldn't be worshiping those people. But other people can be examples for us. And so tonight, I'm really excited to have a friend in the room who is one of those examples, I think who cares a lot about the miraculous kingdom of heaven stuff being drug into the kingdom of earth, of God's priorities landing here. And so I've invited him just to come and do a Q&A with me tonight and for all of us sort of get to get to participate in that as we go. So Cedric, would you come on up here and would you guys welcome him up to the stage too? Amen. All right, so I'm going to, like, give these people your LinkedIn bio right now, okay? You ready for this? Keep it brief. (laughs) Uh, I didn't ask for his permission to do this because I didn't think he'd let me. So um, communication studies, Illinois State University, (laughs) undergrad right there. Uh, Master's in spiritual formation, Lincoln Christian University. Master's in psychology, Fuller Graduate School of Psychology. Master's in theology, Fuller Theological Seminary. PhD in clinical psychology, Fuller Graduate School. You started Legacy Consulting and Research how many years ago? Uh, five years. Five years ago. Uh, you have 20 years in the Army mixed in there along with that as well. Is that, yeah. So that's just, that's just like your stats, okay? But, but fill me in on the journey. Uh, I mean, I want to ask you about your faith, but I'm just talking about family, other stuff. Help us understand who you are. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, welcome. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, Ben, for yeah. having me. Um, it's good to be back with you all in encounter. Um, oh, where do I start? So I, I think I'll, I'll probably start with family. So I'm the youngest of six boys, um, which I think is an important, you know, as far as like my cultural identity. Um, being the youngest of six um, is can be rough. It can be pretty <laughs> painful. Uh, we've had a, a, a beautiful, big, blended family. And so I grew up here. Some of my family members grew up in the south side of Chicago. So I not only did we have different cultural backgrounds in our home, 
of just being, you know, my first job was in Hayworth working on a hog farm and detasseling corn. Anybody deta corn detasslers out there? Yeah. Yeah. Do you even Midwest <laughs> if you don't, you know, detassel? Come on. They still have um, scars from the corn. Yeah, 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 of course, of course. Walked beans, did all that sort of stuff. Um, but my, my parents, both my parents were pastors, and so that, that was a, a big um, formation in my life, just growing up, always being around church, always being around, um, you know, wonderful people. Mm. Like that, that's definitely a part of my journey. So, um, yeah, I, I really began to really pursue Christ. Actually, uh, I had a, a friend who... She started off as a friend, ended up dating. It's always a mistake. Anyways, <laughs> that's a, another talk uh, later on. Different day, different, <laughs> different day. We're not going with that tonight. All right. Um, but her, her mother was a, 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 a part of a ministry called Young Life. Yeah. You can cheer for Young Life. Um, and that ministry of, of Young Life was really formative in my high school life. Um, of watching people who really cared about me and loved me. There was a person who um, supported me to go to camp my senior year of high school, and it really changed my life hmm. forever. Um, I sat at Crooked Creek Ranch in Colorado, and for the first time, I decided, uh, I responded to the love of Christ in a way that was very, very different than I had even though I had lived in a Christian home, I kind of went through the motions for the first 18 years of life, um, but really responded to the love of Christ and, and lived differently ever since. So that's a little bit about my, my walk and my journey. Um, and I could kind of go into a, a little bit more. I, I don't know, where, where do you want me to go from there? You want me to go into... Well, it's, I was just thinking of? about it too, how interesting it is that you have you just have so many overlapping circles and one of them is Capen. I mean, like you you did campus ministry for a stint in there too yeah. with ISU students in the community. It's like so many overlapping circles. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, which is, it's it's wonderful just to kind of be back in Capen Hall. Um, so after I graduated high school, I left uh, shortly after 9-11. It was my senior year of high school. So I joined the Army, um, the Airborne Infantry, right after that. And um, I deployed after I had gotten, gotten in. My first deployment was in 2004. And during that deployment, um, April 29th of 2004, I had found out that I had lost one of my closest friends. He was actually a soldier who had went through the initial invasion in 2003. Then he came back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and had gotten into a car accident. And I had found out that day when I was in Baghdad, Iraq at the time. Three weeks later, I had lost another friend. Okay? We were eating a midnight chow, which is like the chow. We, you have four meals a day there. Midnight chow is the, is the meal where you, right before you go on a raid or go on a patrol late at night, they open up the chow hall for you to eat because, you know, we're sleeping most of the day while we're actually doing our, our work and our business. Um, so shortly after midnight chow, Sergeant Ledesma was killed. And so within about a three-week period, that was mm -hmm. May 15th of 2004, so within three weeks, I had lost these two people that were really close um, and really started a catalyst. I can remember being in Baghdad, climbing on the top of a building in May 18th of 2004, and just taking my journal and just writing. It's like, man, 
God, if I survive this place, like, um, I want to do something, I want to do something big for your kingdom. And so I remember just writing, and I wrote, one day I would love to be a psychologist. Interesting enough, I spelled psychologist wrong <laughs> in that journal, still have it, it's very funny. Um, and so I can remember, but I, I also put in there that I would love to come back to Illinois State. I would love to eventually become a pastor. Um, you know, I had big aspirations. Um, and luckily, I had the opportunity to be able to work at Eastview, Eastview Christian Church. Yeah. Yeah, all right, all right, I see you. All right. Uh, from 2007 to 2012, uh, I worked at Eastview as the associate pastor for college ministry there. So. Um, every once in a while, we would come on campus, and um, it, was, it was called On Location at the time, where uh, we were able to come on Sunday nights, and it was, it was a blast. So it's good to That's be That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Well, let me, let's, let's steer it into, I mean, like I, I asked in the questions that I sent to you, uh, a a scriptural verse that's been a guiding verse for you. I mean, I feel like inevitably there are certain verses that we come back to as anchors, uh, you know, for for Joe and I, First um, Thessalonians two eight has always been like a guiding ministry and home verse for us, and that's uh, I better get it right now. I should have written should have written it out, but uh, it is. We loved, you so much. we loved you so much that we were willing to share with you not only the gospel of God but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us, and just because it combines the idea of preaching the gospel and opening our hearts and being vulnerable. That's been a core driving verse for us for a really long time. Yeah. So what about you? Um, I would say that probably, other than that, I love that verse too, yeah. 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Um, I, I, I chose um, Philippians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 6. Um, growing up, there was this song that my mom and my, my grandmother and my dad would sing um, at our church, and I thought it was just always so beautiful, but uh, I don't... I'm going to do like the, the King James version of it, but it's he who began a good work in you shall see it and be faithful to completion. And I think that for me, um, hmm. that verse has always been salient because I think that there's a lot about becoming. Hmm. There's, a, there's a lot of um, uh, depth in the idea of becoming and working towards something. I think even especially for you all as college students, sometimes when you are becoming whatever it is that you're going to be in your life, whether it be your occupation or your career, your family, uh, or your partnership, your, who you're marrying, all those types of things. It's a challenge. It's a challenge of like the becoming. And I think that in the scriptures, when Paul is writing, not only is he saying, you know, God is going to be faithful to complete this work that has started, that we mm -hmm. started together as co-laborers, as co-heirs together, um, but allow yourself to, in some way, to embrace the process of becoming. Because I think that sometimes what happens is that we race to the finish line. We want to get to the end and yeah. we don't understand that the part of the becoming is not just you getting something done. It's how you get something done that is a part of the process as well. And so um, that verse has always stuck out to me as like something uh, that I can kind of wrap my, my, myself around of like even in the moments when I feel like I'm struggling as a, as a parent, as a husband, as a um, as a clinician or something, you know, like I can always come back to that and say, you know, like I know that God's going to be faithful um, to complete this work that he has started in me. Um, and so I, 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 love that. I, I find that 
I find that there's a lot of power in that scripture to be able to uh, to refer back to it when I'm feeling kind of feeling down sometimes. Yeah, yeah I love that. Well, like one of the reasons that uh, that you have a a strong voice, especially, and I, I think where we're headed tonight. Um, I think I think within the world of Christianity, in, I, I'm gonna, let me use this phrase: in Christian culture, sometimes there is a tendency for us to uh, to compartmentalize faith as this extra thing that sits off the side, and especially when it comes into the conversation that we have about psychology. Or, or I mean, some of you are in the hard sciences here, so you know, like we think of we think of a biolo- uh, biologist or uh, Josh. We think of zoologists. Where you at? Um, and we separate those off as, well, those aren't, these aren't Christian endeavors, you know, these, especially in the scientific pursuits. But, but there's just sort of this tone that, um, that faith is its own thing that sits off to the side and that those two don't necessarily overlap, which I certainly don't think is biblical, you know. Um, and so there can almost be a tendency to be scared of, you know, e- that, that my econ class and that faith have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Um, I think scripture obviously speaks otherwise, that, it, that you know, the Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I mean, that, that whatever economies that we have exist because he put them in play. Um, I'm assuming, since you have a PhD in psychology, that you would share <laughs> some of the same things. But I, like, how do you see the intersection between um, specifically psychology and faith, but I think it's a broader question beyond, like, how, how do those things collide for us? Yeah, it makes me think of um, one of my first times being on Fuller's campus. Fuller's has three campuses. There's one in Houston, Arizona, and the one that I'm going to be talking about specifically is in Pasadena. And I can remember, you know, walking through the campus, and uh, there's a, a part of it that is more for, like, the theological buildings and theology instructors and then there's also a psychology building and there's this breezeway this beautiful breezeway that's placed in there and as you walk through the breezeway they have a statue that's there um, or a monument if you will and what it is 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 the psychology sign anybody psychology majors out there all right that's all right it's the psychology sign and inside of the psychology sign is a cross and in it, it uh, you know, in the inscriptions, it just says, uh, placing the cross of Christ, Christ in the heart of psychology. Mm. Right? As a mantra for integration, uh, thinking about, um, as you were talking about, if everything is the Lord's and everything therein, um, how do we integrate our work, our life as Christ followers in everything that we're doing? the way that we think about human nature, the way that we think about healing, the way that we think about psychosis, the way that we think about people um, turning uh, within themselves or turning away from others. Hmm. Um, I don't go into a, a clinical space and not see the work of God or the work of being a Christian or the life of, of being a Christ follower separate from my work as a clinician. Um, I think that they're, they're deeply integrated because of the way that I think of humans. Hmm. And the way that I think of humans is if you truly believe that they are the imago Dei, the actual image of the living God, and then I am an image of the living God, um, 
as an image bearer, then how can we come closer to one another in that? And so I think that there's a lot uh, to be said about um, finding ways that we can be more integrated as human beings and not necessarily trying to um, compartmentalize parts of our life. Like I'm the same person here on the stage at home as I'm the same person when you see me order at Starbucks or you see me with my children or you see me out for a run or whatever it may be, that I would be the same, I would have the same ethos, right? That there's something um, about me that is carried over and integrated in every component of my life, which hopefully as a Christian is being a, 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 a component of reconciliation, finding yeah. ways to be able to reconcile, um, bring that, you know, that life of God in whatever activity that I'm doing. And that's not to say that I'm going around like laying hands on people all the time, you know, but <laughs> I do think that there's, there's some yeah. power with, with it. How can I have moments of reconciliation and have that as, a, as an intricate, but also an integrated component of my life? Yeah, man, that's amazing. All right, so, so what, like you talk about in Baghdad, that moment on top of the building? Yeah. Um, there's that moment, but what was the journey? What drives you into psychology? I mean, what sustains you in terms of not just having a revealing moment there, but mm -hmm. feeling like there's a sustaining purpose in that particular niche? Field. Yeah, um, because I think that, that's a great question. That, that was not on the list. <laughs> You're welcome. Question. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, why do I do psychology? I think that because everybody has pain. Everybody has pain. And, and I think that being um, a person who gets to walk with people in the mm. midst of their pain is an honor. And it's something that somebody trusts you with, that you could be a part of, that you can help, that you can hold or contain in some way that is just powerful and beautiful. Um, and I think, and I look at that as being a clinician as a, in my life, uh, it's a calling, it's a vocational calling. It's not just something, it's not just like a career that I get paid to do. Yeah. I feel like it's something that I step into because as a Christian, this is the way that I have been gifted and skilled and taught and learned how to be a conduit of that reconciliation that I just spoke of. Um, so for me, being a clinician, it's, it's an honor, it's a privilege. I love working with people. Um, and even what you're, you know, loving, loving God and loving others, like I think that that's a component of loving others, but also showing people the love of God as well. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's explicitly in my work because we can talk about, uh, you know, de depending on the clients or they bring up like their faith or their spirituality and their journey to be able to talk about that explicitly. But implicitly, even if I have a, a client that has, um, a, a, you know, identifies with no faith or no religious background, um, I still treat them as a human being and, um, and, and treat them as the image of God, which I believe that they are. Um, yeah. So I think that even that is, is healing and, and, and there's a component of reconciliation that happens. I love that. Well, let's talk about these lovely people for just a yes, moment. Let's do it. All right, yeah. my Gen Zers. Um, I, I, as I was prepping for tonight, this is a couple weeks ago, actually. I was, uh, I was pulling up some different statistics, and I ended up deciding not to put any stats on the screen. First of all, because they're a little bit different everywhere I looked, 
Um, but the trend was all somewhat the same. I mean, that when we look at anxiety, when we look at depression, when we look at eating disorders, when we look at self-harm, when we look at suicidal ideation, when we look at pornography addiction or substance abuse, um, the trend is not in a positive direction, I mean, like statistically. And I don't know, I mean, like I, in that, in my Googling, in my Googling in that time. Is that a word? I, I'm going to make that a word. Now. Um, all, almost all of that stuff was pre-COVID as well, okay. which I'm guessing uh, has not slowed the process of many of those things. And so, um, so in other words, there's, there's this general tone in the stuff that I was reading that people are concerned. People are concerned um, in, the, in the battles and struggles that you guys are either facing or that the people in your direct proxy are facing. And so statistically, you either are struggling with that or you are close to someone um, who's had significant struggle. And, and so this isn't foreign to you. I don't think any of you are like, I've never heard of such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, this is the, the reality that you live in. Is that... Is that because everything's also hyped and spun and monetized and used and fear-mongered. Is that true to what you see in your experience in this generation? Um, how do you speak to that as someone who has a lot more experience in that than I do? Well, I think I would say that, for one, we have different experiences in it, right? Because I mm -hmm. think that we, we do know, even statistically, that when people, Gen Zs as well, who are struggling, the people that they come to first are not clinicians, they're their clergy. Right, or their friends. Um, that's the first line of defense, which is really important, too, with thinking about even community. Yeah. And, and most people are not going to come into my office and to sit and talk about their deepest struggle. That's, that's, that's an anomaly. Less people come into therapy. Most people are going to come to you. They're going to sit in a small group. They're going to talk. They're going to emote. They're going to be sharing things in that spaces. I think that overall, though, um, you know, your, your prevalence rates and Yes, they are on the rise, but I think one of the reasons is, is that could be accounted for is that it's more likely for this generation to be reporting things that in past generations that we never recorded, mm. right? Because you all have, uh, one, you have an ability to be able to look, to explore, to be able to connect uh, as far as technology in ways that you never have before, right? Which I think that that's pretty remarkable. Um, so I think that that's one thing. It's not to say that because you have technology now um, and, and all those statistics are, 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 are the same, um, I still think that there's some serious and gl there's some glaring problems. But I think that part of the problem, it's not to say like this is you know, across the board, but I think part of the problem is because we've become very obsessed with ourselves. Yeah. Everything, a lot of things, not everything, a lot of things have become um, so hinged on how we're looking intrapersonally. And I think that that in and of itself is really problematic is how self-focused we are as a culture. I, I don't think that that's something that, um, I don't think that that's something that is new. I think that it's, you know, it's happened, but I think now it's a little bit more prevalent which I think that contributes to the cycle of feeling depressed and anxiety because you have so much to compare to mm -hmm. of what they're doing and what you're not doing, of what you perceive as the right way to live comparatively to the way that you're living, as what you perceive as what is fun that everybody else is doing that you're not a part of. 
So I think that the comparison and the access to comparison is just so much, it's exponentially different um, than, I, even when we were talking about earlier of, uh, and, and uh, my wife and I, when we went on our honeymoon, honeymoon we only had, we only have one picture from our, our honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> and you were talking about how you had the disposable cameras. You know? yeah. Anybody remember the disposable cameras with like the aluminum foil? Okay, all right. Yeah, so, I mean, like, I told you guys a couple of weeks ago, Joe and I just celebrated 25 years. So our honeymoon pictures that we took had the disposable cameras. So, you like, we took pictures of all of this stuff, had no clue what we actually captured, brought all that stuff back home, sent it away. It takes, like, two weeks to develop them. And so, like, a month after your honeymoon, you're like, I wonder what pictures <laughs> we have. Very yeah. But... Um, yeah, I, I think that that is that is one thing. Oh, I, I do want to oh, I do want to touch on something. When I was um, when I was doing like clinical training, one of the things that I thought was really interesting. I worked at a hospital, it was a psychiatric hospital in Southern California, and the history of the hospital was that every year they would have people who would come into the hospital to essentially work the fields. Right, that's how the hospital started. It was a farm. Hmm. And so the way that they helped in this early psychiatrist, this is the, like, you know, um, in the 1920s, 1930s, the way that they actually helped the patients was that they gave them jobs. They gave them responsibilities, not only for themselves, but for others and for the community that they were a part of. And so I think that that coming back to that too i mean this is kind of i'm going to probably say this like a broken record i do think that the way that you build resilience the way that you seek healing is in community yeah i, I you know if you if you don't hear anything else that i talked about or we talked about we discussed uh, it's about community it's about coming back to that community there's no magical solutions to wellness or well-being hmm. okay i think that that's a myth when we think of that there's this magical thing that's gonna happen in these four steps, but it really comes back to how do you, how do you cultivate that community, that trust building within that community in order to, over time, um, not solely focus on self, but you focus on the interpersonal connection and what you're building together. Um, that is life-giving. And so I think that in a, in a world that is telling us to, it's, it's about yeah. you, it's about your, your happiness, your next step, your thing that you're doing. Um, sometimes the, the community is missed in that. Um, the ability to see, well, what, what about you? How can I partner with you? How can I collaborate with you? How can we build, what can we do together yeah. in order to co-create that, that change, co-create that reconciliation as, you know, as co-heirs together? Um, I think that that's, you know, that there's no magic to that. Um, but I think that that's a component of, of really thinking outside. And, and I guess at times, um, it appears now that that's countercultural, um, which is pretty shocking. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think I'm going to say anything new, but I am going to double down on what you just said. Because I, I, I think at the core of what Jesus taught, um, all these, well, um, Let's go back to the conflict, because you talked earlier about yeah. Imago Dei, just this idea that we are made in the image of God and created. I mean, so we are beautiful. Yeah. We are wise. We are creative like our Father. And so, and our, our culture, I think, tracks with that, because our culture thinks that human beings are the pinnacle. Um, and so there's, there's a piece of that, that as a follower of Jesus, I truly believe that humanity is beautiful like our God is beautiful. Yeah. 
Um, but I think where we part ways then is that we also believe that we are fallen and broken and fickle and fractured <laughs> and, and need, in need of redemption. And so that core message where our culture says, hey, believe in yourself, celebrate yourself, um, treat yourself. I mean, like that, that message that we have that sits out there, the message that we have in Scripture is die to yourself. I mean, it is not self-worship does not sit at the heart of who we are. And, and the idea that we can only truly find ourselves in Christ then and that our identity sits firmly in him, it does diverge from the cultural message mm-hmm. big time. Yeah. I have another thought about that. Please. Okay. I think that what you said, I agree with you. I think one of the, the I guess, a caveat or that's an adjacent thought, too, that comes to mind is on the opposite end of the spectrum, I think that Christians sometimes, especially in this this spaces here, we can be very punitive of mm. ourselves, right? Where we hyper focus on our fractured self, or we hyper focus in on how we're not doing well, or we're not, you know, becoming yeah. enough, or we're not this. And in some way, I think that th- it's a little bit more subtle, but it's still self-centered. Hmm. It's still focusing in primary as you being the center of fill in the blank. So I, I think that there has to be a balance where, yes, like I do believe, I agree with you that there is a fallen components of we are not who I think that um, uh, because of sin, to be very clear, because of sin, we are not who I think that humans were necessarily intended to be at that moment at this moment. However, I think that hyper-focusing solely on our sin and how bad we are, the self-deprecating. There's still a lot of I in the middle of that. Yeah, Like, you're still centering yourself. Um, So I think that there's a component of that where how can there be a balance where you can have humility and say, yes, um, I'm broken, but I'm in repair. Right? And not necessarily just hyper-fixating on the brokenness. So how, how, let's bridge the gap then. How does what we started with tonight, love God, love people, which is the, the, the basic foundation. And Jesus saying these two principles, everything else hangs on these in our behavior. How do those speak into that? Yeah, I think that loving God and loving people primarily um, is lived out in a way where you are, grateful and expressing gratitude of the life that you have but as a part of your gratitude you're facing outwards and serving the community that's around you Hmm. and loving the community that's around you Um, I I think it's that simple Um, and not to say that it's not complex to do that but I think that being able to connect with others being able to serve. You guys did, what was it, the last couple, what was it, a couple weeks ago you guys had? Uh, for the city. For the city. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Kelsey, Kelsey is, um, hey Kelsey, good to see you Kelsey. <laughs> Kelsey, um, she was telling us about, Kelsey uh, babysits our children, um, and she's done it for the last couple of years. She's amazing. Give it up for Kelsey, guys. Kelsey, she's amazing. Sorry, I didn't mean to embarrass you. Um, we don't have enough babysitting shout-outs. Oh, I my don't goodness. Think. We She's should have amazing. more. My kids love her. She's amazing. Um, so Kelsey was talking about, you know, all of the, the, you know, the kind of the breakdown, what you all were doing for the city. But I think that 
going back to everything, whether it be like health or well-being, there is something about uh, following Christ that's embodied. Yeah. It's, you know, the resurrection, the, the reason why there's power in the resurrection because there was something that was embodied, right? That there was something that was felt, there was something that was seen, there was something that was actually delivered. And I think that um, as the Christian life, when we talk about well-being and wholeness and wellness, it's not just, just you know, a, a, a consuming for self, it's, it's consuming and then being able to release it back out to the community that has given life to us. And so, you know, I think I'm really big on like creation. I'm big on taking care of our creation. I'm big on, um, you know, having the ability to be able to uh, uh, have an impact on the people who are around us. But I think that that's all a part of being a citizen for this world that we're a part of, yeah. loving this world that we're a part of. Um, and so I think that part of taking care of yourself and emotional, psychological well-being is also being mindful of yourself, the other people around you, mm. as well as your global community and the creation that you live in as well. I love that. I think that's actually, that's a good transition to where I wanted to take us next. Okay. Yeah. Um, and man, I could keep talking. So I'm, I'll try to be concise. Um, but I, the last couple of years for me, uh, of all the things 2020 will be known for, one of them for me was leaving social media. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm on it, but barely. Um, but during that season, uh, you know, the, the converging voices, the, the conversation around specifically race and privilege, um, my Facebook feed was about as polar, uh, as, as anything I've ever seen and poisonous. A lot of it really toxic and angry, um, and dialogue, but not dialogue. So a lot of talking and not a lot of listening. And I, I felt convicted during that season because a lot of these people I'm really close to um, that I needed to have a posture of listening. Like, like that there were a lot of things that I didn't, there were a lot of life experiences that sat really close to me in my proximity that I didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Like that was, that was what that season taught me. That, um, and... Uh, and so I began, I, I began to do that off of social media. I began to have private conversations. I began to lean into some people around me. And I was kind of, uh, no, not kind of. I was blown away, um, I think, at some of the assumptions that I carried with me. Like when I, I, I know privilege is a loaded word, but when I began to explore some of my own privilege, mm -hmm. and I'm not just talking racial privilege. I mean, like when I'm looking at the differences in lived experience between men and women around me, the, different, the yeah. differences in lived experience between black and white or majority minority or, or even just economics. Mm -hmm. um, there's a there was a much wider diversity than I think I understood. <laughs> yeah. and, and it began a time where, where God began to pick at me in a good way of learning to listen in a different way and realizing that I just did not have a lot of spaces in my life where some of these conversations bore fruit yeah. or where some of these questions were asked. And so it's been a good season for me. I mean, even in understanding my own story, to, to think about if, if I'm talking about economic privilege and realizing that in my own story, my dad's family, well, I mean, came out of extreme poverty yeah. and realizing that just in my lifetime, like my, my family came 
changed economic stances, and I was a part of that experience without even really ever processing that and hearing my dad's own stories. Um, this, when, it, when it comes to uh, multicultural competence, this is a work you've been doing for a long time. Yeah. This is a work that you've leaned into professionally. Like, I, 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 I'm getting at a question, yeah, but it's yeah, a complex no, it's one, all, all right? So the question is, there's a frustration in my world that I feel like we had this blaring noise in, in cultural war two years ago that as, national, as the national attention has moved elsewhere, um, how do we as followers of Jesus continue to have these conversations with each other? How do we con continue to have conversations that create positive change, both institutionally and personally? I mean, like, I know I'm asking big questions, yeah. but, um, but your lived ex experience is different than my lived experience, mm -hmm. and as well as all the different lived experiences that sit in this room. So how do, how do we become more humble and more intelligent? Sure. And how, is, how does the body of Christ have impact? Because this is impact you've leaned into, mm -hmm. and not just recently. Yeah. I think that I just hid nine questions in that yeah, for you, you. So, well, I was I was just sitting here thinking. It's like you know, you, with every every conversation you have about race, there's a risk. And so, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, well, how much do I want to risk? Mm. Um, Me too. 100%. Of course you are. And I think that this is, this, is, this is how you have the conversation. You fumble through it. But you continue to have it. Because once again, there's a shared commonality of believing that you are a part of the kingdom and I'm a part of the kingdom. You belong here, I belong here. Or we're brothers. That's right. I think that... Um, Martin Luther King, he, he once said that there can be no deep disappointment without deep love. Mm. Yeah. That there is something very palpable about the disappointment that many um, people, I would say black Christians, myself, um, have felt about the responses of many Christians' um, dismissiveness. When we look at 2020, there's a lot of voices that come up, and there's a lot of what I would call ruptures that happen, societal ruptures, individual ruptures within relationships that happen. And many times we focus in on the ruptures, but we don't really lean into this idea of the repairs. Hmm. And what I would say about having a conversation is not hyper-focusing in on the ruptures that happen, acknowledge that there are clear ruptures, right? But focusing in on how do we repair this together. Um, in psychology, there's a, a study, I'm not gonna go into it, but it talks about uh, in the 60s uh, with a guy named Sharif and Sharif, and they did um, about superordinate goals. And basically, the, the only way that you were able to work to you know, and, and towards a common goal with one another in order to get an outcome that was different rather than having an in-group or an out-group, okay? And I think that a lot of times when we think about the issues of race, like we're really um, foreclosed on the idea of 
mixing it up. Hmm. We stay in our groups. We read our same posts, and then we get into this confirmation bias where, you know, I'm looking for the things that confirm my own opinion. I'm looking for the things that confirm my own biases and my prejudices that I have. Uh, and I think that when we think about being multiculturally competent and a Christian, we also have to be able to say, well, what, what, what do I think about humanity? What do I think about my brother and my sister who's in need? What do I think about my brother and sister who is suffering? And if, if I really believe this idea of being an ambassador of reconciliation, then what am I doing to reconcile this moment? Hmm. What am I doing to reconcile this system? What am I doing to reconcile this pain? You know, I have to think about that all the time as being a clinician, right? As if I'm really trying to lean into this idea of integration, I'm also thinking about, well, how do I be an ambassador of reconciliation in this moment with what comes out of my mouth? I think that the same responsibility is on every single one of us when we see suffering, hmm. when we see pain. And the way that people stay in their pain and their suffering is to have other people who are part of their community completely dismiss their pain to completely um, make it out to be that this is a, a gimmick, that this is something that's here and now it's there, and that it's a moving target, and find different ways to um, delegitimize it by pairing it with something that is absolutely asinine. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to, to squelch, right? To use power in order to squelch something. Um, as a as a Christian, I think that our responses to the conversation, whether it be with race, whether it be with gender, whether it be with sexuality, whether it be with ethnicity, is to find ways for how can I be an ambassador of reconciliation in this moment hmm. and lean into that. And usually, it's not with being punitive. Right? It's, it's usually not with being punitive. It's finding ways to how can we connect how can we co-create this change? How can I see you as a human being, as a person that God created? How can I bring love in this moment? Um, that's not to and, say- And how can you possibly do that? I mean, I, I think this was, the, this was the conflicted part for me. How can you possibly do any of those things without even an awareness? So if the questions aren't being asked, yeah. and I don't, I don't even have a sense of that pain or that opportunity doesn't exist, mm -hmm. Um, how can you address a need you have your own eyes closed to? Absolutely. I, I mean, know. like what you said, baseline is having that awareness that, that there's a conversation that actually needs to happen. Yeah. Right. Um, and the conversation that needs to happen is not necessarily always like with somebody else initially. It's first with, with self. Who am I? Like you said, like you, you had an opportunity when we think about multicultural competence, think about multicultural humility, it's just the opportunity to be able to stop and think, what is my story? What are my cultural identities? How has that shaped me? How has growing up in the Midwest in a predominantly white community shaped me? How has that shaped my understanding when I go to a predominantly white institution? How has that shaped me? How has it shaped me that four of my six brothers are in the military? How has that shaped me? How has it shaped me that my father, um, who was a pastor, uh, ended his life terribly hmm. with an affair? How did that shape me? How has it transformed the way that I think about life? 
part of just even having a conversation about any type of change starts with having cultural humility and really thinking about our stories and our narratives. How has that compelled me to respond or to think a different way? And that's not just you know being a, a minority. I don't have a monopoly on that. And you, as a majority, as a white male, don't have a monopoly on that. That's something that every single one of us can really lean into. What is my narrative? What is my story? How does that shape my understanding of humanity and other people and their pain? Yeah, and I, I think too, I don't, and I, I don't, I'm not going to speak this into your generation because I think that this is an us thing in the present. There is, a, there is a sense of wanting to think institutionally, like how do I bring institutional change without challenging personal change? In other words, without the self-examination that comes with, like I want to erase bias from the system, sure. but, I, I do, <laughs> but I'm not going to spend the time to understand if it sits in me. Yeah, yeah, you know? absolutely. And I think that that's, it's, and it's easy to do, like, um, you know, because that's once again, like, we're putting it out, out there. Like, it's something that those people do, but it's not something that I'm complicitly a part of in some way. I think about it all the time in, like, the Army, um, like, with gender. That's the first thing that comes to mind. When I, so, I can tell a brief story. Sure. Yeah, how this relates. Okay, so, <clears throat> when I went to the United States Army Ranger School, no females were allowed to go, okay? So I graduated ranger school, and there was no females that were there. Um, and I can remember when they opened up ranger school to allow females to go, I can remember being in a formation of men, and it was almost that they were giving us the announcement like somebody died. Like, guys, come, we're going to let females go to ranger school now. And I can remember thinking to myself, now I have a choice right here. As somebody who has went through the school, I, I am acknowledging this bias, I'm acknowledging this prejudice, but I also have power because I'm a graduate. So what do I do? I can either lean into the conversation and speak up or I can be complicitly silent in this moment and to allow this nonsense buffoonery to continue to happen. I think that every single one of us have an opportunity to be able to step into spaces like that, to be able to co-create that change, to really be able to extrapolate that humanity out. And I think that that is a part of justice, mm -hmm. and then I think that that's also part of being a Christian. I don't separate those things. I know that a lot of people think that like social justice is a distraction, possibly, of, of following the gospel. Well, it's embodied. Like, I, I, don't, I don't see those as separate. I think that that's a component of, it's not to say it's the whole thing, but that's a component of living out the Christian life. Hmm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, in one of the, we're over time, but you know what? We'll be over time. It's all right. Sorry, guys. Um, I, I was just going to say, one of the learnings for me, I think, in that season too, and again, I know privilege is a loaded word, but uh, I fell in love with Philippians 2, that talks about Jesus not considering equality with God something to be grasped, but clothing himself, you know, in human likeness and lowering himself and becoming a servant. And it was just interesting to me that, you know, it, in terms of what we would think of as, as power or influence, no one had more than Christ. And yet the posture that I see in the God of the universe is putting himself beneath me, raising me up, using his position of influence um, 
on my behalf. Like that's that's the space, and that's the, and that's the that's the model. And so, and and again, the there are all these different lived stories in the room that go beyond that. I mean, that race is a part of, and that gender is a part of, and lived experience is a part of, and the economics of how you've grown up is a part of. But that that humble posture of beginning the space of, of listening to each other. Um, let me give you, I want to give you the final word. And band, I'm sorry, I'm killing your last song. Everybody can be like, oh. <laughs> um, but I, I, I want to give you the last word here um, in terms of looking at this generation. You have a great vantage point. Yeah. Again, because you, you know and love college students. You work with college students. For crying out loud, you've been a student for a significant portion of your life. Yeah. Um, what's an encouragement this group needs to hear? Yeah, I, I would probably steal the words of my um, my wife and I. We were in couples therapy for two years when we were both in grad school. It was a really challenging time of life. And our therapist, um, he said this thing that I thought was just so powerful, and I'm going to pass it on, and I hope that it's helpful for you all. He said, no matter what, stay an engaged relationship. And I would say that if there's any kind of encouragement, is stay an engaged relationship with the people that are around you. Find ways to connect. Um, I would also say that it's important to answer the question, how do you view and perceive culture? There's a, a, a book out there What's his name? Bruce Ashford. And he talks about Christianity against culture, Christianity of culture, and then Christianity in and for culture. And just these different breakdowns. Um, and if you, the book, I, I want to say it's titled Every Inch. And it's basically talking about every inch of your life needs to be for God and with God and uh, to God. And I would encourage you just to think about how you will approach because the culture is continuing to move and we are a part of it and the way that you influence and have impact in that in my opinion and i think he would attend to is that you are in culture you are for culture but you are for changing the culture in a way that the kingdom of god gets to shine through and that you love people with all of your heart with all of your mind with all of your strength um, so i would say with as an encouragement if you feel like you're not doing enough or you're doing too much, if you are just focusing in on loving the people that are in your life, treating them with respect, dignity, in the name of Jesus, and including yourself with that, too, mm. in the name of Jesus, start there. And allow yourself to go through the process of growing and developing and becoming. I love that. Love that. And again, you guys, again, to bridge, to bridge these two worlds, as we've been talking about the miraculous power of God on this planet, I believe in that. And I believe that the mechanism that he unleashed on this earth to do that is his people. It's his people. It's, it's us. Not just us, but all of the followers of Jesus that exist on this campus. There are other ministries doing it, right? Other churches that you don't go to, people who are following Jesus that church of Jesus Christ, Jesus himself said, the gates of hell itself won't stand up against that. That is his plan for us to love his people by his power through his spirit. So would you, would you mind closing us in prayer? Yeah. So we'd love that and we'll be dismissed.
Would you guys stay up with me? I'm gonna actually ask you guys just to keep your eyes uh, eyes open and and uh, head up too. Okay, and if you feel comfortable, I'm just gonna give you a benediction. Okay, um, God, I pray for every person that's in this building. I pray, Lord, that their life continues to ring out love, grace, and peace for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that they feel encouraged, that they feel your love, that they can go out and make a difference for your kingdom in whatever domain, in whatever space that may be. For your glory. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Just say thank you. listening. Find out more about Encounter and ways to get involved at isuencounter.org.